So this is from chapter 6 of Hylozoic, reading at Dark Carnival Books. Three nasty-smelling man-sized birds stalked into the woodsy clearing, moving with an urgent, stealthy gait, now and then hopping a few feet into the air and flapping their stubby wings. They resembled stubby ostriches, grubby ostriches, or rhea birds, long-necked, dirty brown mops on scaly stilts, anything but cute. The downward curve of their blunt beaks lent them a sour demeanor. They pecked bugs from the ground, squawking to each other as they came. Stop right there, Twee called to the unsavory birds. Where are you from? The biggest one caught his harsh response, sending along a telepathic symbol signal that made the sounds into words. We are Peng from planet Pengur. I am Suller with my ill-tempered wife Greta and our no-good son Kakar. Why do you insult us in front of the new slaves, squawked Greta, aiming a sharp peck at her husband's feathered body. We're invading your planet, volunteered Kakar. I think that's cool. I want to watch you mate. <laughs> Chu almost smiled at this. He liked rude kids. Warm World's Realty is bringing the cream of Peng society to your planet, said Suller. What a crock, the young Peng Kakar quacked. You're broke losers, Mom and Dad. That's why you took this stupid job as land developers. The cream of Peng society are the ones who are going to actually pay Warm World's Realty to have a ranch on Earth, if this place turns out to be livable, which I doubt. I swear I saw a rat just now. Rat! <coughs> squawked Greta, hopping several meters off the ground and staying there, curiously suspended in midair. With abrupt fury, Suller pecked Kakar hard enough to draw blood. Screeching piteously, the younger Peng bird flexed his legs and leapt for the roof of Tui and JJ's house, extending his rudimentary wings for balance. Safely perched on the roof, he railed at his parents. I hate you. I wish I'd never been hatched. Ungrateful fledgling croaked Greta, settling back to the forest floor. Her voice cracked. Despondently, she lowered her beak. Tell us about your home planet. Chu urged Suller. My voice is tired, said the tall alien bird. I've been squawking too hard. All this hassle and stress, I'll show you a, a kind of movie. A flow of images began in the humans' heads, richly enhanced by data links. It was an ad for Warm World's Realty, with headquarters at Planet Pengra's South Pole. The first scene shows Virgo Supercluster, which stretches 200 million light years, encompassing the M51 group as well as Milky Way's, the Milky Way's local group. The M51 galaxies sparkle like diamonds on black velvet, and now one of them begins to grow. It's the beautifully symmetric Whirlpool Galaxy. We are not alone, croons a bird's voice in a deep textured tone. The viewpoint zooms in on a particular planet whose temperate zones are a filigree of green and blue. There are no open seas or level plains on this world, only a global maze of water channels and verdant rock ridges. A heavy frosting of ice coats the polar caps. Our planet Pengu is ancient, says the voiceover. Our once molten core has all but crystallized, our continents have shattered, and thus our world surface is a labyrinth of sea and stone. The view swoops into winding interlinked fjords with twisted trees growing in every crack. 
Flocks of birds scythe through insect swarms and wheel above the crystal waters diving for fish. Our planet's beauty reflects the perfection of Pekka, our planetary mind, says the narrator, and one species above all enjoys the radiance of Pekka's full favor, the Peng. The shores are lined with dwellings, domed structures of nested stones, each hut with a door, two windows, and a ventilation hole in the roof. Peng birds strut in and out of the homes, knees bending backward, fluffy brown bodies bobbing up and down. They stroll along the shoreline, chatting with each other, snapping bugs from the air, wading into the shallows for frogs and minnows. The peng can fly, but not in the usual kind of way. Thanks to pale blue tick-like symbiotes known as flight lice, they can make themselves weightless. Hovering like feathered blimps, the peng use their tiny wings to maneuver. Now and then a peng floats up a tree or a cliff to peck apart a parrot's nest or a swallow's mud-daubed home, devouring the eggs and the fledglings. We peng have been the dominant species for hundreds of thousands of years, resumes the bass bird voice. Our ecology has converged to a lasting equilibrium. A sequence of display cases flashes by, exhibiting the surprisingly few species of life on Pengur. Trees and flowering plants, frogs and fish, earthworms and beetles, some smaller birds, the Peng, and no mammals. We revel in the simple perfection of Pengur's biome, quacks the narrator. In the intellectual sphere, a similar process of refinement has taken place, raising our arts and practical crafts to a level that might seem to rule out further improvement. But great originals still emerge, wild talents like Wahir, who flourished 1,000 years ago. The viewpoint flies back in time to a chalky cliff. The cliff is like a public art gallery. Its surface is decorated with chicken scratches. Peng artists are at work, using their beaks to scar the white stone, floating and fluttering along the face of the cliff. The artworks fall into four types. Jittery ovals that shape the outlines of eggs, chevron patterns that model peng feathers, arches that represent peng homes, and images of a shaded ring with a pucker in the middle. Responding to Chu's puzzlement, the built-in glossary explains that the puckered rings represent peng cloacas, which are the multi-purpose body vents that birds of both genders use for excretion and sex. Chu bares his teeth in a reflexive gesture of disgust. Back in the metal movie, a single grungy peng jitters about on the higher reaches of the cliff, frantically pecking fresh images into the stone. This is Wahir. He wears his feathers tinted an unnatural shade of orange with a defiant red mohawk streak running down the middle. Kakar, who is watching the show with the humans, caws approvingly. Wahir's artworks are unique. Rat-tatting like a woodpecker, he engraves skeins of stars, spiral galaxies, flaming suns, distant planets. He's a science fiction visionary. Wahir's drive for transcendence inspired Pekka to a wondrous discovery, intones the narrator. Peng can travel to the ape worlds via Pengu's cloaca. The orange-feathered Wahir cocks his head as if hearkening to a call. He glides away from his space murals and, in fast-forward, makes his way across miles of ridges, disheveled and dogged, sometimes walking, sometimes buzzing through the air like a blimp, heading ever further south, beyond the temperate zones and into the polar wastes. The pocked shiny snowfields are lit by shimmering auroras, by crimson and yellow streamers that emanate from a luminous hole located precisely at planet Pengu's south pole. 
Haunting alien music thrills the air. Pekka, the planetary mind, is calling Wahir to the special place. The fuming polar vent, known as Pangu's cloaca, is the senescent planet's last sign of active volcanism. The hole bores into the depths like a mine shaft. At the deeper levels, an orange glow tints its mist-shrouded walls, for liquid lava lies below. Wahir stands at the tip of an ice-glazed promontory that projects almost to the center of the smoking vent. Above him, celestial lances of auroral energy flicker across the sky. There's much to be explained about this uncanny scene. A quick montage of diagrams shows three salient facts. Firstly, Wahir, as transcendent artist, has visualized an intricate representation of his mind and body, a runic pattern containing all of his behaviors and personality quirks. Secondly, Pekka has reached through a telepathic link to locate a suitable colony world, a planet named Peppel, populated by telepathic individuals resembling skinny green humans with three eyes. Thirdly, Pekka has formed a tight link with a gifted Peppel queen, but dazzling her with a mental image of an idealized Peplese king. The music swells. With a hopeful flap of his little wings, Wahir springs forward and lets himself drop like a stone. Our first pioneer, says the narrator. Shu sees a stylized image of Wahir landing in a glowing lagoon of lava accompanied by an X-ray skeleton flash, a sharp sizzle, and an olfactory whiff of sulfur and fried chicken. Wahir's ashes form a fractal pattern of greasy swirls. The lava heaves. Lahir's stains fold back on themselves, and a sheaf of beautiful abstract forms rises from Pango's cloaca, modulating the auroral streamers with the subtle song of Wahir's rune. The rune signal rises heavenward, and then, just beyond Pango's atmosphere, it veers into the eighth dimension like a river going underground, only to emerge within Queen Ulla's mind on Peppel, there to be rune cast into the Queen's royal estate. The viewers catch a final glimpse of Wahir's tulpa, his new body on the other world, working hard as a flying steed for the three-eyed nobles, carrying a fat duke along in pursuit of something like a fox. And he'd hoped to be a court artist, said the voiceover with a chuckle. Peppel has not been the most popular of our colony worlds. The narration resumes. In the tradition of Wahir, Warm World's realty continues spicing Teeker worlds with the glorious savor of our finest citizens. We've made the process simple, painless, and fail-safe. Purposeful cheaping fills the background. Stone fences appear around the crater at the South Pole, along with domed pang houses and a double-sized meeting hall. Warm World's realty maintains fine facilities adjacent to Pengu's cloaca. We carefully screen the candidates for interplanetary travel. The rigorous warm world selection process ensures that, should you make the grade, you'll be among an elite cadre of partner pioneers. Warm worlds requires that our partner pioneers place their full economic resources in trust, and you'll be invited to bring as many as four family members along on your unparalleled journey. To schedule a preliminary assessment of your qualifications, contact Hulda Peckendottir, at Warm World's Realty today. Invaded by real estate developers, said Chu, I can't freaking believe this. And maybe I'll stop right there for now. But uh, 
a lot of times people like to ask questions, so maybe we can do some question and answer now. If you have any questions about me or my writing or science fiction, the meaning of life. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about why you chose to write a sequel? Yeah, well, it's funny. I started writing Post Singular. It started as a short story. The first chapter, maybe I guess the second chapter, is a story about uh, some nano machines taking Earth apart and making them, making using all their matter to make this sort of asteroid belt of nano machines that's going to run a simulation of Earth, and they're going to call it Verth for Virtual Earth. And because there are like some some people like. They call themselves post-humanists. They talk about this idea of we're just going to make this huge computer and we're all going to live inside it, which I think is sort of a terrible idea. It's, it's sort of like paving a wetlands and putting up a mall, you know. And uh, so I, I wrote that story, and then uh, then I got interested in the characters, and then uh, so I, that ended up turn, turning into a novel. And then... At the end, there was still more stuff that could happen. Because one of my goals... Uh, I, I worked as a computer science professor for 20 years, and I've done a lot of programming. And I've sort of, in a way... It's familiarity breeds contempt. You sort of get to... There's things that are annoying about computers, and when you work with them more, they get even more annoying. And uh, so I've always had this idea it would be nice if somehow computation could stop being in these boxes and somehow migrate out and just be living in air currents and, and flames and things like that. And so I had this idea. And then I latched onto the idea of quantum computation, which I'd been resisting, particularly when you're an older science fiction writer. Sometimes there'll be these new buzzwords and you'll sort of balk and say, I'm not going to go there. you know. But actually quantum computation is good because then you can sort of say, any piece of matter, like this pen, in a way... I mean, there's octillion atoms in there, and they're all vibrating like crazy and doing chaotic things. And so in principle, though we don't really know how to do this, you could use pretty much any piece of matter as a computer. And people have been talking about the singularity when this great change will happen you know, on Earth when our computers will reach a certain level. And I thought what would be cool would be if that change meant that the computations kind of moved out into the air currents just all around us. And so that's what happens at Post-Singular. But then, uh, towards the end of Post-Singular, I kicked it up a level, so I had everything in the world become conscious. And then, that's sort of, I wanted to explore that in, in the next book. And this next book, it's called Hylozoic. That's actually not a word I made up. It sounds like Jurassic or something, but Hylozoic is actually, you could even Wikipedia, it's a real word, and it means... It's a philosophical belief that everything is alive. And the Greeks, to some extent, th saw that, thought that. They kind of got the idea for that when they first saw magnets. There are these things called lodestones. They're naturally occurring magnets. And they noticed that these rocks would move and follow each other around. And they're like, okay, that rock's alive. And then they're like, actually, everything's alive. So hylo is matter, and zoic is, is life. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to play with that idea. Because it's, it's not an idea that... Well, sometimes actually in fantasy, you'll have this thing where, you know, all the objects are talking to the characters, but I wanted to sort of put it on more of a science basis. Now, whether I'll write a third one in this series, I'm not sure. Hylozoic, um, in the end, it got fairly intricate, if you've read it, I don't know. It's, it's, it, towards the end, it gets... It, it's a page-turner, but then if you try to figure out what happened, it's, it's... 
I, I was worried maybe it's it's sort of like ministry playing Jesus built my hot rod. It's just it was half hour of insane speed metal. But not to discourage you from reading it, but it's it's actually funny and easy to read. But maybe I, I didn't want to keep up that pace anymore. So right now I'm working on a different novel, but I may yet come back because it's sort of traditional to do three books in a series. So what are you working on right now? I'm working on a novel called uh, Jim and the Flims. And it's about a guy in the first chapter, he nearly dies. And then uh, these weird people show up and he follows them into this alternate universe. And then it slowly dawns on him that although he's not dead, this alternate universe is in fact the afterworld. And there's things sort of like ghosts there. And then there's some creatures there who they sort of want to bring on the apocalypse and put an end to Earth. And uh, they look sort of like flying beats. I don't know if you all, any of you are familiar with the, the cartoons of Jim Woodring. Sometimes he draws these things that, that fly around and they look sort of like beats with these long curly tails. And he calls them jivas, which is actually a Hindu word that means something like spirit. And, uh, and so those are the sort of bad guys. I actually emailed Jim and asked if he minded if I used his creatures as evil aliens in a science fiction novel. He was like, yeah, that's great. Hmm. So, uh, so that's what I'm working on now. I'm about half through with that. So I'm still I'm having second thoughts. I don't know. I don't totally believe in the afterlife, so I feel a little uneasy writing about it. But uh, I may yet dig up some science fictional justification for it, so maybe it's more like a computer database or something. I don't know. Do you think that uh, it will eventually be able to upload consciousness into the computers, and wouldn't that be an afterlife in that? Well, that's yeah. That's the that's the sort of post-humanist afterlife. Yeah, that whether uh, that could work. My sense is probably by the time we could do that, computers are going to be very different than what they are now. I mean, it really, it's. So as we lose track of how recent this whole thing is, it really just started in the 60s, you know, only like 40 years ago. And it's like people don't use watches with gears anymore. And I would guess that in 100, 200 years, the things that we call computers are probably not going to have silicon chips. They'll be more like chemical processes or biological things. And uh, But whether the, the whole idea of uploading, thats I used to think about that a lot when I was younger. Actually, the first one of the first novels I wrote was called Software. And that was like in 1980. And then, actually, nobody even knew what the word software was. It was like an unfamiliar word. I had just seen it in Scientific American. It wasn't a well-known word. And then, uh, but I, that's when I first had the idea of you could slice up somebody's brain and then extract their personality and then put it onto a computer inside a robot body. And... Uh, that appeals to people. Uh, I'm, it's sort of, it's almost psychoanalytic. Well, well, first of all, immortality always appeals to people. But then, like, why would you particularly want to be a robot instead of a person? That's, uh, you know, that's usually men are more interested in that. <laughs> Doesn't it seem to be that it's heading in the direction of not either or, but a little of both? Cyborg-like. Oh, uh, I see your point. Materials are getting miniaturizing, and uh, we're internalizing them and merging with them rather than 
robot versus man. Well, that's, yeah, actually, yeah, I actually get into that in, in wetware. There's a, if you're going to upload yourself into something, it might as well be a, a tank-grown clone of your body. I mean, you must have a nice human body. And uh, it's sort of, so that, that it's, it's conceivable that maybe you'll get to the point where you can keep swapping out parts where you can live for a very long time. Uh, like, you know, if you have a, a 1950 VW Beetle and, you, you know, you've changed every single part in it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, but in some sense it's the same car and in some sense it isn't. But uh, it's really, we still, it's a longer, some, sometimes people like to imagine that this is going to happen within our lifetimes, but we're so much at the beginning of understanding how the brain works. It's, they almost don't even have a good theory of it at this point. How do you feel about the law of accelerating returns and how that affects the speeding up of technological innovation in our lifetimes? Well, there's this whole notion of, yeah, that if you, there, you look at these curves of, you know, the rate of technology that's going up, and then uh, there's almost, it's become almost a religion to some people, like... Uh, Kurzweil. Yeah, like Ray Kurzweil. It's pushing the idea of the, the post of the singularity, and then the nanomachines will come into my body, and they'll clean me, and then I'll be uplifted into the computer. And it's really, it's almost like a millennial cargo cult religious belief. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily that well based on fact. I mean, it, it used to be instead of that, people would talk about freezing their heads, and they're going to be immortal that way. And uh, I'm personally, I'm I'm okay with dying, you know? I mean, that's what happens. You know, you get to a certain age, and you're not around anymore. And then uh, you have this certain stretch of space-time that you get to inhabit, and then, you know, then you're not around. But that's, if you look at it from the outside of space-time, this, like today, will always be here, in some sense. So, uh, generally, I think people that are obsessed with immortality, this, I think that's, I think that's maybe, uh, I don't know, neurotic. (laughs) Do you think that there's any biological or biological law or law of physics that countervails that possibility? Uh, I don't think so. There's there's nothing that really rules out that there could be a a copy of me. Uh, Another angle, you could say, well, maybe the universe is infinite. I mean, they're still not totally sure. And then maybe there's, you know, there's the, the old line, there's other planets that are just like this. There's things that are just like me. But if there's a, a copy of Rudy, you know, in another world, does that really do me any good if I die right now? You know, it, it's debatable, you know. One, I mean, we, we tend to settle for more alternate forms of immortality. You know, many of us have children. That's a way of sort of continuing yourself. Or you, you help younger people you kind of influence them, you create artworks. I mean, there's, we have different hedges, different kinds of things we try to do to sort of break our influence out of the limited time shell that we're in. How about another question? So where do you see humanity going? Where do I see humanity going? I don't think we're going to change that much. Um, that's another thing that's always bothered me about Oh, like Star Trek. Like the people in there, 
they're just so dorky and they wear pajamas all the time and they're so emotionless and, and humorless and, and flat. I mean, why would people suddenly start being totally boring in the future? You know, I think people are going to be just as filthy and uh, hairy and grubby and neurotic. And, and if you look at like your relatives, these are the people that you know the best usually. And every single one of them is crazy. You know? I think pretty much anyone would agree on that. Any, and anyone that you know very well is crazy. I mean, everybody in the world is crazy. So sometimes we, there's this vision, there's a certain kind of science fiction where there's this clean, almost like social realism type future where everybody's you know, working together for progress. And people aren't ever going to be like that. They're just going to be... I kind of became aware of that. I was doing some research into the Middle Ages where I was... I wrote a novel once about the painter, Peter Bruegel, a non-science fiction novel. And I love those Flemish painters. Actually, Hieronymus Bosch is in a couple of chapters in Hylozoic. They do sort of a time trip and hook up with him. And when you like study those paintings, you can see, I mean, they're doing exactly the same kinds of things that we do. You know, we think we'll be so bad, we've discovered some new sexual perversion or something. But they're all, like in these old paintings of Bosch and Bruegel, they're like nothing's, people, we only have so many things that we, we can do. So I don't see us humanity changing that much. One thing I could see changing, and I get into that in Hylozoic, is uh, it'd be sort of an extension of the web. In a way, when I talk about telepathy, it's sort of a, it's, in a way, I'm really talking about the web and being everybody being in communication. And as that becomes more widespread, you could see there being maybe less of a need for leaders, because so often... We'll, we'll get these people that clamp down and become the ruling elite of a country. And in the U.S., it's... Well, now it seems fairly benign. Uh, like a year or two ago, it seemed less benign. But uh, and but then if you go to, you know, like some place with a brutal dictatorship, then it's clearly not good. And it could be that perhaps... I mean, societies could start being governed on more of a real-time basis... You know, taking into account you know facts and and the realities of the situation, whatever, taking more of a, a real-time interactive democracy, and this whole idea of ruling elites, I could see that that going away. That would be one thing I could see happening politically. Yeah. There's no one else. I wanted to ask you. I noticed that in science fiction, it seemed more in the past science fact involved. <coughs> science fiction and now science fact seems to be leading the way and fiction's following and singul- the singularity and people writing about it seems to be an example even though it hasn't happened have you noticed any trends do you agree with that trend or have you noticed any other trends in science fiction in the last say 20 years well the relation between science and science fiction yeah it is always most science fiction writers are not not most but many of them are not particularly well informed about science you know they'll know a little bit They've some, you know, all they've done is seen some science fiction movies and read other science fiction books. And then other people, you know, somebody like Werner Vinge or, or Greg Benford, they've delved into science a little bit more. And uh, sometimes you'll see science fiction where somebody's taking like a new science idea and kind of using the, the book as a, almost a laboratory to, you know, work out what would happen. If, if this is that's sort of what I'm doing. I tend to do that in my novels. And, uh, but it's, uh, 
it's also a few years ago writers were they were concerned about this singularity it's sort of Werner Vinge first started talking about it this idea that the like if you could build a computer that was as smart as a person well we know how to upgrade a computer you get make it get a chip that's twice as fast and give it twice as much RAM and so then would it be twice as smart as a person so the idea is that we could start building up and getting these incredibly smart <laughs> machines and then uh, there was some fear among science fiction writers some people would say well we can't see past the singularity we, we don't know how to write about post-singular worlds and that was why uh, I was uneasy about that for a little while but then Charles Strauss wrote a book that I, thought, I think was very important called Accelerando and it was actually a series of I think 10 or 12 linked stories and it just sort of blows right through the singularity you know and uh, it's really it's still just science fiction and uh even if we don't know what's going to happen, we're certainly good at making up stories about what might happen, you know. And so then, just kind of really get past it. That's why I called my novel post-singular, because I'm just we're going past it. And there are lots of cool things in science that are... Like the whole thing... I mean, consciousness hasn't really been explored very much in science fiction. I mean, 90% of the universe is made of stuff that we don't know what it is, dark matter and dark energy. I mean, what is that stuff? We haven't really touched that. Um, the whole thing of genetic engineering, there's been some science fiction about it, but there's still, there's probably a lot more cool things you can do with that that we haven't really touched. Uh, so, yeah, there's no end of, of new ideas that we can play with. And... Uh, but sometimes people, they don't want to do that. I mean, sometimes... Well, science fiction is a huge... I mean, it's like a country. There's all sorts of different regions in it. There's different things that people want to find in it and they come for. And some people aren't really interested in new science ideas. They they want Star Trek, you know. They, they want the same old rockets. They want to have a captain. You know, they want to have... <laughs> well, I don't want to just pick on Star Trek all the time. Uh, but, uh... So... Is space operas. There's been a sort of a comeback of space opera. Where you have people that are, they're sort of in the navy and they're in ships and they're flying around. And that's, uh, you don't necessarily have to have new ideas to write science fiction either, because there's a lot of old things that you can just recycle, and and people like hearing those things. I've got a question about the hacker and the ants. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah, you, yeah. You mentioned that you lived in Los Gatos and you read uh, the Hacker and the Ants when you lived there. Yeah, it was set there, and there was the Los Gatos Coffee Roasting Cafe. And that was really Los, Los Osos, or, or I call it Los Peros. Oh, it was. <laughs> yeah, when I write about Los Gatos, which is where I live, because Gatos is cat, I usually call it Los Peros, because Peros is dog. <laughs> Because, uh, I mean, if you write about San Jose or San Francisco, you call them that. But if you're writing about some small town, you tend to change the name. Yeah, that was just so perfect. I mean, yeah. working, you know, in the technical fields. And, uh, well, yeah, I worked at Autodesk for three years. I just uh, sent in a resume if there's a job opening. Oh, yeah, yeah, Autodesk is a good place to work, or it used yeah, to be. And, uh, but then I had, 
I lost my job there. They, their stock price went down, and they got rid of the frills, and I was a frill. <laughs> and, uh, what was I doing? Uh, well, the the founder, of, one of the founders of Autodesk was a guy called John Walker, and I was for a while very interested in these kind of graphics program called Cellular Automata. Oh, yeah. And they make these really rapid, very like cool. Yeah, the Game of Life is the most famous one, but I started doing them in color and with instead Game of Life just has two states on or off in each cell, but I started having a whole continue a real number of states, so you could have changing washes of colors. And Walker got into that, and uh, so I came to work for Autodesk, and we did a cellular automaton package. You can still get it for free online. It's called Cell Lab now. You can, you can get all my software. If you go to rudyrucker.com, you can get all these software packages. And so then I also wrote at Autodesk some software to go with James Glick's book, Chaos. And then uh, then I was working on something called Artificial Life Lab. It was like a, a virtual ant farm. And those, well then, when their stock price went down, they said, this has nothing, somebody at Autodesk observed, this doesn't have much to do with creating blueprints for buildings which is like our core business, you know. So then uh, then I was out on the street. But but actually, I'd, I had a job at San Jose State teaching computer science, and I'd just been on leave to work at Autodesk, so I was able to go back there. Was that the Hacker and the Ants era? Yeah, the Hacker and the Ants was based on my, my days at Autodesk. Actually, in the novel, the uh, one of the characters who was sort of modeled on John Walker dies horribly in the last chapter. <laughs> and that annoyed Walker. Sounds like a, quite a character. I was just reading something he wrote about Autodesk. Autodesk files, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's very opinionated. He's an interesting guy. But then he wrote an alternate last chapter for the book and put it on his website, <laughs> in which his character only faked his death. And the whole last chapter is him explaining to my character what a fool he is. <laughs> is, that, is that available? It's on his website, oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. But he. He called his website For Me Lab, which is For Me is Ant in French. So he sort of internalized this. What do you think about the possibility of uh, the internet some random Tuesday morning at 4.30 suddenly waking up just out of sheer complexity? And being alive. Being alive or some, some form of consciousness. Well, I've always liked that idea. That's sort of a traditional science fiction idea, too. Do you um, see it as a possibility in reality? Um... Take a virus. <laughs> it could. I mean, if you had a really good virus that was able to evolve and copy itself. Uh, one thing that I always laugh, though, when the computers wake up in the movies, they say, all right, humanity, now you will be my slave. But the thing is, we already are their slaves. <laughs> I mean, all we do is upgrade our computers and get better pieces for them and care for them. So well, they couldn't really ask for more you know, than what we're doing. But thinks rather than necessarily a machine would think? Well, what, what would, need would they have for us? Well, they need their upgrades. They could need it upgrade itself? Uh, could it write its own software? Well, at some point it could, I suppose. But, uh... I'm not going to run out to the corner and buy myself a new hard drive, though. Well, I guess you could, it could make an automated factory. I mean, it could, it could be done, but the thing is, about th- things about computers, they're, they're still such brittle systems. Like if you have like one tiny thing is screwed up, 
then the whole thing just comes to a halt and it won't run. And we're fortunately not like that, you know. I mean, you can have like a, a stroke and part of your brain gets knocked out, but you're still able to get around pretty well. Or, you know, you cut yourself, you don't bleed to death, you scab up. We, we have this quality of being self-repairing. That's something actually uh, on the space opera thing. I'm thinking about space opera these days. I'm sort of tempted to write one. Um, but the idea of the ship being mechanical, that doesn't seem very realistic to me. Because if you're going to go off in something and be in it for a century, you know, you don't want something that's like this, as brittle as a car, you know, or a computer, where, again, you just get one thing and you have the spare part and that's it. You need something that has this quality of homeostasis, is the technical word, this ability to repair itself. So you really do want something that is in some sense alive. I mean, maybe it's a hive of nanomachines or it's a giant jellyfish or... In some sense, uh, I think I think if we do start having starships, it's going to be things that are, in some sense, living things that we get inside. Any questions from you guys? I think like a moldy ship. Yeah, a moldy ship. Yeah, giant smart plastic, and you can have sex with it. <laughs> it takes good care of you. Well. Maybe, maybe we should proceed to the, the book signing uh, aspect of this encounter. <laughs>